And we have been looking at Jesus's high priestly prayer as part of this overall series. I've been calling the master and the disciple. And this is really our third week in this intricate and ingenious uh, piece of literature. It's, it's Jesus's prayer that he prays before his disciples and for them. Uh, and, you know, really over the last two weeks, we focused on, on one, you know, how Jesus's entire life was lived out and is lived out of his devotion to uh, his father and his love for the father and how his life manifests what it means to live out that, that first phrase of the Lord's prayer. Hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We've also seen too how uh, he just loves his disciples and he's explained to them what it means both in belief, but also in action, what it is to claim that Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ. Well, this week we are are further going to see how Jesus both loves his disciples, but really his concern for them, his concern for them as he will soon be returning to the right hand of the Father, and they in turn will be used by God to build Christ's kingdom. Well, we are in chapter 17, uh, we're going to start with verse 9. This is a little artificial to start here, but still, just for the sake of time, we're going to start in verse 9 and go to verse 15. I am praying for them, that is the disciples. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let me pray for us as we enter into the sermon. Heavenly Father, we pray that this word would be a good one, that we would be able to meditate well on your son and who he is and how he loves us and how you have loved us through him and how the spirit is at work in our lives and our heart. Lord, I pray that we would uh, grow in our love for you because we can see just how much you really do love us and delight in us. And that would be our motivation for wanting to follow you wherever you have placed us. Lord, I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so with verse 9, Jesus says that he is uh, praying for his disciples who the Father has given him, but he's not praying for the world. So by saying he's not praying for the world, he does not mean, of course, that he is against the world or doesn't care for it. No, that would be contradictory to his mission, because we all know the, the verse, right? For God so loved the world that he sent he gave his, his unique only begotten son so that whosoever believes in him might have eternal life, right? That's at the center, really, of John's gospel. It's the center of Jesus' mission. Jesus cares deeply 
for this world. And we see this concern really across the whole Bible. If you think God is against the world, you've missed it. God cares deeply for his creation that he made. And God doesn't merely, of course, even just want to redeem it. He, he wants to cure all of it. And he has accomplished this through his son. But in this moment, in this moment, his, his concern is for his disciples who will be carrying out the work of making his name known in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. You see, the world will come to know Jesus. The world will come to have life, if you think about it, through these men and the power of the Spirit. I mean, just if you just think on it, I mean, here we are, right? Working through John's gospel. We're working through John's gospel. We know Jesus through accounts just like this one. But again, as we mentioned last week, it's interesting that, that Jesus says these disciples were the fathers and the father gave them to Jesus. This, of course, speaks to God not merely knowing who, who Jesus' disciples would be, but actually choosing them and then giving them to Jesus, who in turn gladly received these men as gifts. So if, if you've ever wondered about your worth as a disciple or whether God actually cares about you, now, maybe you think it's God's job to be kind to you or to be nice to you or to take care of you, or, but you don't see that he actually values you or that he delights in you. No, no, no. Know that, that God chose you. That's purposeful. He chose you and gave you to his son, and his son treasures you because of it. Now, this is evidenced by the fact that not only does Jesus pray for these disciples, by extension, as, as he says in verse 20, which we'll probably get to next week, in that moment, he was praying for us too. I mean, it blows my mind that he is this close to crucifixion. And what's on his heart and mind are his people, right? If it was me, what would be on my mind? This is gonna hurt a lot, right? On his mind, was not only his disciples, but you, you. He delights in you. And even now, you know, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us in our worship. We've prayed for that and we have confidence that, that he answers that prayer, that he is reminding the Father that we belong to him. I mean, how beautiful is that? I mean, it's incredible when you really stop to think about it. The one who is the Lord and judge over all things is also our advocate, and delights in us. Well, here's what Jesus prays in verse 10. He says, all mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Again, he's still talking about his disciples. So it's you know one thing to say, God, everything I have is yours. Th that is by definition what it is to recognize that God is God and we are his creatures, you know, everything we have, everything we enjoy, everything we depend upon, even down to every heartbeat, every heartbeat and every breath we take, it's all gift. Every last bit of it, it's all gift. And as Abraham Kuyper famously put it, I, I quote this often, right? There's not one inch of God's creation that God doesn't say, mine, mine. 
And, and, and I would argue his ownership extends all the way down to our very thoughts. We don't own ourselves. We are not independent of him. And it's the height of idolatry and one of the deepest religious impulses of our times to believe that I am my own creation. I'm my own man. I am my own God. So it is never my body, my choice, ever. Or as Bon Jovi, that that poet once sang, it is my life, it's now or never. Or as Sinatra, a slightly better poet saying, I did it my way. I mean, those are all examples of the way of death, by the way. Those are examples of the way of death. Do we have responsibility and the ability to make choices? Of course. But it is satanic. It is of the Antichrist to believe I am the king of my life, the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. And we know over the course of human history how that lie has worked itself out. But Jesus doesn't just say everything I have is yours, O God, which again is is the proper and good response of a human to God. He says, and yours are mine. And yours are mine. That's different. Jesus claims ownership of what the Father has too. And this is a subtle way. This is the genius of the book of John. This is a subtle way of John pointing out that Jesus is fully human and he's fully God. What Jesus has is the Father's. That's, that's his humanity. That's, that's what we must confess as his people. What the Father has is Jesus's. That's his divinity. And as we talked about last week, to confess Jesus is not to confess that he was merely sent from God or that God was with him in a special way or that he was a a miracle worker or a great teacher. You can go to any university, take a history class on the ancient Near East. Chances are pretty good the teacher might say those. They'll certainly agree that he existed. They might say, well, yeah, he's a pretty important teacher like the Buddha or something like that. No, 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 this is different. It's to confess and believe that he is the son of God, fully human, fully God, equal to the father in power and glory. There's the difference. Now, notice how Jesus says, same line, how he is glorified. Earlier in the passage, he asked for his father to glorify him through his death on the cross. And Michael Glodo, I think that's how you pronounce his name, of RTS in Orlando, recently pointed out, and it gets directly at this, we do well to take our cue from Abram, and I would say Jesus as well, to whom God gave a name, rather than from Babel, who aspired to make a name for itself. So it's better to be commended by God than elevated on the shoulders of people or self-promotion. There's the difference. There's the difference. Jesus, fully God, wanted his father to elevate him. The world wants to elevate itself. Jesus and his kingdom are not like Babel. No, he's exactly the opposite. So instead of pursuing trophies and honor or or whatever, he pursued the last place. He pursued the good of his people as opposed to how sinful humanity so often pursues 
its own selfish ends, its own glories, give me trophies, its own name, all of that. And here he, he says he will be glorified, not just in his crucifixion that's coming, that he asked the Father to do for him, but he'll be glorified in his disciples. And what he has in mind is how they will conform their lives to his and proclaim his gospel and, and willingly die for him. Like how Jesus pursued the glory of his father. So Jesus's disciples will in turn pursue Jesus's glory for the sake of the father. So hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. That, that's our action item plan right there. That's what Jesus's disciples do. So as opposed to how the world, like say Babel or frankly America, often selfishly pursues its own name, we pursue another and seek to glorify him. It's the difference between hallowed be my name and hallowed be your name. See, Jesus is most glorified not when we subjugate our enemies or defeat our cultural opponents or build massive buildings or have a huge media footprint. I think on it. You know, by some church's standards and how they've, they've uh, tried to pursue Jesus, Jesus' own ministry was an abject failure. No, Jesus is most glorified by his disciples when we conform our lives to his, when we walk in his ways and we seek his glory and the good of our neighbors. And that's, that's not very exciting to a lot of Christians. And it certainly won't have the appeal of Babel, which, by the way, is incredibly tempting for us. But it's what Jesus wants from us. That means, you know, we very well may appear irrelevant to modern culture, maybe even to Greenville, right? You know, our, our church may wind up shrinking and not looking very cool or, or very busy or, or whatever. You know, Jesus never said pursuing him was efficient or, or relevant or would earn us trophies from the world. No, it's, it's just the opposite. It is inefficient to follow Jesus. It will put you at odds with the world. In fact, instead of getting trophies, you may get to be somebody else's trophy. And we have to be okay with that. We have to be okay with that. We have to be okay with the hard task of faithfully following Jesus exactly where he put us. And that's hard. It's hard. Well, in verse 11, Jesus says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Now, many Christians have mistakenly read passages just like this one as if the hope of the believer is to escape, is to escape the world as if that is what Jesus is doing, as if he's like, Whew, finally out of that mess, I get to go back home, finally. It's like when people say, y'all, this world is not my home. I can't wait for it to burn, not my home. No, you see the Christian hope from Genesis 3 to Revelation 22 is for this world to be redeemed sanctified and glorified. That's what Jesus actually wants. What's interesting to me is that humanity's calling 
and purpose in Genesis 2 was to make God's name known throughout all of creation. That's what image bearers are created to do. We image God. So we're like little signposts, little signposts pointing to God. And so humanity was made to go out from the garden sanctuary, we call that Eden, where they enjoyed communion and fellowship with God and was to go out into the wider creation, subduing it and having dominion over it, bringing God's rule to bear everywhere. Guess how your week is structured? You're in that garden communion right now. What are you called to do? Stay here? No. You're called to go out into the world as image bearers, representing him as signpost to his rule. You know, and, and God never, if you go through the Bible, he never takes that calling back. He never takes it back. He never says, well, the earth is wrecked. It's time to junk it, y'all. Let's just start over. Now, to be sure, he does cleanse the earth. He does cleanse the earth of humanity's sin, most famously with the flood. And of course, Jesus' second coming will ultimately do that in an even greater way. But God never scraps his creation or starts over. And to do so, if he were to do that, it would be to concede that Satan won. That Satan won. It would be to admit that Satan actually was successful in spoiling and twisting God's good creation and God could do nothing to change that. No. God reiterates to Adam after the fall and again to Noah after the flood, then to Abraham, Moses, Israel, and now through Jesus and his church, we are following in the same pattern, if you haven't noticed. You know, that part of the purpose of our salvation is that we would be fully alive humans in union with Christ who in turn bring his name, his image to bear throughout creation. Our calling is to do that here. It's no better than New York. It's no better than Paris. Might be better than California. But we are called to do that here. Paul says in Romans 8 that all of creation longs for this and is waiting on it like a woman suffering labor pains. It's why we don't believe this world will end because of apocalyptic climate change or world war or global pandemics or whatever, but will end in song and worship because it has been renewed and redeemed by the king. I mean, Revelation 21, just like Isaiah 2 and 9 and 25, picture this reality and look forward to it. So the idea of escaping this world has much more to do with, say, Gnosticism and Greek philosophy, or, or actually maybe more like Hinduism or Buddhism than it does what the Bible teaches, in particular about what humans are and what our purpose is, and what our future life will be like. This is why whatever job you have, whatever place you've been put, you have value, and you have meaning. You image your God there. So when we read that Jesus is returning to the Father, this is not a statement of escape. It's actually a statement about his rule. Remember how the book of Matthew ends, right? Jesus says, All authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. I mean, that's just a restart on Genesis 2. So formally, though God was was sovereign, of course, over all things, he had allowed 
like what we see in Egypt with the book of Exodus and how God takes on all those, those gods there. He had allowed for nations to rebel against him and be ruled by spiritual beings who were also in rebellion against God. This is what the Tower of Babel is essentially about. Then the rejection of the true God, sinful humanity was scattered and given over to these sinful divine beings to be ruled by him. I mean, that's Deuteronomy 32's take on Genesis 11. Just go read it. It's what Moses says. So we think of these, these beings as demons. Right? That's, that's the term we would use, and that's, that's right. Or as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. These evil powers have lost. Jesus has conquered through the cross and is ruling over all things from God's throne room. I mean, that's, that's what heaven is. That's God's throne room. And in turn, he's taking back his creation inch by inch, and he's content for it to take a long time. Now, what's fascinating is that he's not taking back his creation through an army, at least not as the world thinks about armies. He's taken it back through the proclamation of his victory and the offer of life with him. So it's, it's very much like the song we sing, I don't know, once every six weeks or so, Oh Church Arise, that, that Getty tune, it's a modern hymn. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing it, but let me walk you through some of the words because it gets the entire biblical story, right? Oh Church Arise, and put your armor on. Hear the call of Christ, our captain. So if you stop right there, you're already reading it probably in secular terms, right? For now the weak can say that they are strong in the strength that God has given, right? So that the strength is in God himself. With shield of faith and belt of truth will stand against the devil's lies, an army bold whose battle cry is kill them all. No, right? The battle cry is love. It's love reaching out to those in darkness. Our call to war, this is key. Our call to war is to love the captive soul, but to rage against the captor. And with the sword that makes the wounded whole, and you know what the sword is, right? It's the word of God that brings life. We will fight with faith and valor. And, and I just love how they put that. The sword that makes the wounded whole. What does a sword normally do? It puts the wounded out of their misery. Kills them. This sword heals. When faced with trials on every side, we know the outcome is secure and Christ will have the prize for which he died. Ready? An inheritance of nations. He's taking back the world. I don't know if you realize this or not, but you sing the whole Bible when you sing that song. It's incredible. There's such talented people. So we are not called then to escape the world, but to be in the world, even as we are not of the world. That is, we don't have a citizenship defined by the world anymore. We're not of Babel. We are of the kingdom of God. Like Jesus, we are to love the world and hope for its redemption. So that means we are, as what Stanley Hauerwas and Will Willimon famously put it, we are resident aliens. 
Now, when I was young and I heard that term alien, I imagine, you know, space aliens. Don't think that young people. Think foreigners. People who are, like, say, from a different country but live in this one. That's what a resident alien is. So we may have been born in the South. We might sound Southern. We may love where we live, and that's good. You should love your land. I hope you do. But we have a fundamentally different identity and calling and way of life that was given to us by God. So we are residents of this land. And like when Israel was captive in Babylon and lived there, we are called to love this land and its people, even as we recognize that fundamentally we are aliens here. And as those resident aliens, we are not looking forward to the time when we get to escape and finally go back home. No, we are looking forward like scouts for the army when our Lord will come to make this land fully his own. So our hope is not to leave the earth, it's to dwell on the earth forever. We aren't looking to leave. We are looking for Jesus to come. That means sometimes we will fit in and sometimes we won't. And what will determine whether we fit in or not is Jesus Christ alone. There's a lot of things, of course, that can make a person feel like an outsider or that he doesn't fit in. But for Christians, it can never be any of the things that people use to define themselves today. No, we belong to the king and are defined by him. And when we walk in his ways, trying to conform our lives to his, sometimes that will bring us honor and respect among our neighbors. And sometimes it will bring us disdain and hatred or worse. This is why Jesus says in verse 14 that the world will hate his disciples because of his word. If the world hates us because we are jerks or because we act like the world, well, guess what? That's on us. If the world hates us because of God's word and how we have conformed our lives to his, that's a beautiful thing. It's why Jesus prays that the Father would keep us in his name. That is, that we would remain in union with God through Jesus and we would remain faithful. And in turn, that we would be one. Now, that last statement is important because it's a statement about unity, not uniformity, but unity. There's a big difference between the two. You know, uniformity means we we need to look and sound, maybe smell the same, right? So Islam and Mormonism, they are after uniformity. Sometimes fundamentalist Christians are after uniformity, too. And it typically shows up in simplistic, legalistic formulas about dress, about, I don't know, what words you can or cannot use, or phrases like don't drink, smoke or chew, or go with girls who do, right? Now, there's real wisdom in in that statement, but it is not the basis for our unity. In fact, it cannot be. And if you think about it, uniformity is far easier to achieve. I mean, the purpose of a uniform is so that everyone will appear the same. It strips away differences. It makes people easier to manage. Look like this, do these simple rules, and guess what? You are part of the team. It's why clothes, for example, are not just about covering nakedness. They're not. They signal what class of person you are. If you don't think clothes are symbols, 
just try dressing against your class and see what happens. Someday, when I get really bold, I'm going to go to Presbytery, dress for a basketball game, and see what happens. Right? Clothes shouldn't matter, but they do. They're symbols. They're symbols. And what Jesus is after is far harder than uniformity. But it's also, thankfully, so much more beautiful. See, unity is having a shared purpose, a shared goal, and a shared reason for existence that transcends individual differences without destroying them. So, for example, you know, if you consider Jesus' disciples, one of them was a former Roman sympathizer who was a traitor to the Jewish people and had exploited them for serious financial gain. He wrote the Gospel of Matthew. Yet there was another disciple, Simon, who was a zealot, and who, he's the very opposite end of, of Matthew. Simon, as a zealot, was about as pro-Jewish, down with the Romans as they come. So it, it would be like having a small group where someone was totally woke and someone was a white nationalist. Can you imagine how that small group's going to go down? That was kind of what it was like to be one of Jesus' disciples. They were very different. I mean, do you think becoming Jesus' disciple instantly erased their past histories or their politics or led them to hold hands around the campfire, start singing Kumbaya, we're all disciples now? No. I mean, how do you think those, those conversations on the road went between just those two men? You know, I'm guessing there was probably some tense moments. But what united them was not politics or their jobs or their class or whatever. It was Jesus. It was Jesus. It's why, for example, I have in the past, and I can now, I can make common cause with Baptists, Lutherans, Methodists, Catholics, Episcopalians, Pentecostal, the Eastern Orthodox, a rock and roll church, a high liturgical church, a city church, country church, black, white, Hispanic, Korean. Don't care. Don't care. I can make common cause with Christians from diverse backgrounds, even when I disagree with them on some doctrines. If they are united to Christ and seeking the kingdom, we can find unity. Uniformity? No. No. Unity? Yes. Yes. Jesus wants his people to have the same kind of unity, not uniformity, as he and the Father have. And what makes this so hard for us is that we tend to major on the minors and allow secondary doctrinal issues or worse, secular politics or personal preferences or class distinctions or race or whatever to destroy our unity. And it happens all the time. So I have Christian friends who are pro-mask and some who are anti-mask, some who are pro-vax and some who are anti-vax. And, and they take these positions very seriously. Even just think about this now. Think back two years ago. If I had just said the sentence I just said, you'd look at me like I was a crazy person. Like, what is this gibberish coming out of your mouth? But now these are live issues. These are live issues among Christians, and it is tearing congregations apart. See, what unites us is not personal positions on vaccinations or mass or whatever. It's Jesus. 
Now, that doesn't mean that sometimes my friends or other Christians say things that I don't radically disagree with. It happens a lot. There have been numerous times over the last two years where I have found it better to keep my views to myself than to risk angering or putting off or offending a friend because he or she sees things differently on a secondary issue. I'm not talking about primary. I'm not talking about core doctrines. I'm talking secondary, even tertiary sorts of things. What must unite us is Christ. In everything else, there must be humility and wisdom and patience. Jesus, in fact, desires unity so much that he prays for that here too. Well, if you take verses 12 through 15 as a whole, it is clear that Jesus has guarded and kept his disciples, except for Judas, who fulfilled scripture by betraying Jesus. Jesus knew what Judas was about when he chose him and was not surprised by his actions, though I think it's safe to say it was heartbreaking. It's also clear that Jesus, though he is returning to the Father, desires for his disciples to find their joy in him. He doesn't say that they might find their joy in their circumstances, which is what we so often try to do, but rather that they would find their joy in him. You know, as we await the return of the king, this life, it's going to have happiness in good times. It will. I mean, it's been a great weekend for me, for example. I've had a good time. Thursday through today. But it can also be defined by pain and by suffering. And I've visited with people who are suffering right now and in pain. You know, the only way to face daunting circumstances, which we all will face sooner or later, is not to attempt to create joy for ourselves, but to look to Christ for it. It's also clear as he goes through those verses that the anchor for his disciples and in turn for his church is his word. It's the word that he has given them. See, all here's the thing. All lives are grounded in words. Think about that for a second. All lives are grounded in words. The question is, which ones? The only hope, the only life there is, is found in the one who is the word, the way, the truth, and the life. It's in this word, this logos, this Christ that we hope and can face the future. But it's that last verse, verse 15, that I want to focus our remaining minutes on. Jesus does not pray for us to be removed from the world. That's important. He doesn't pray for us to be removed from the world, but rather that God would keep us from the evil one. Now, that does not mean God will not let us suffer. Clearly, he does. I mean, just consider how things went for the disciples in their ministry after this, or or Job, or Moses, or any of the major prophets, and you'll see God does allow us to go through sometimes intense suffering and pain. The promise of the gospel is not a pain-free life. Anyone who tells you that is lying. Jesus never promises that. No, the promise is that the gates of hell will not prevail against the onslaught of the gospel. Our call to war, remember, to love the captive soul, but to rage against the captor. Well, sometimes the captive soul rages against us because of the one who captivates it. You know, I don't know anyone who actually wants to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Even Jesus prayed for the cup 
of judgment to pass from him, but it may be a reality we will one day face. Even so, I think the more common temptation is that we will be conformed to the world instead of refusing to fit in with it. So, for example, this past week I watched a basketball, a basketball game where uh, the visiting team from a self-professed Christian school exhibited some of the worst behavior I've ever seen in high school sports, both from parents and students. And I'm not saying the home team by any means is a darling of character in sportsmanship. They're not. And I count myself among them. There's plenty wrong with the home team crowd. But the home team does not explicitly identify as a Christian school. Christ is not in their name. And when you explicitly lead with Christ as the head of your institution, well, it demands something of that institution that goes beyond what the world has on offer. And I I want to make clear here that I, I don't think the school in question was actually uniquely bad among Christians. As a parent in that situation, I could feel the temptation rising to meet their sin with my own sin. In fact, I would say it was intoxicating. The temptation is always to meet the world on the world's terms. The temptation is always for Christians to meet sin with sin. You know, I think those students and parents did exactly what most Christians in our country do. There's how we behave when we specifically want to claim to be Christians. You know, maybe Sunday mornings, maybe it's in a Bible class, maybe when we, you know, or maybe when we oppose or, I don't know, promote some political issue. But in every other circumstance, we follow lockstep in line with the world. So there's one way of acting at church. We all know you got about 15 yards until you got to put it on, y'all. You know. But at a ball game, think about that, a ball game. We drop our Christianity because we believe the situation demands we drop it and we hardly notice the contradiction. Now we think it's fine that we should act like this. Cuss like a sailor, treat the refs like Hitler, demonize demonize your opponents. It's why every time I'm asked to pray before a ball game, I pray for the refs and give thanks for them. And I pray that the fans would not be evil. And by the way, it's usually a confession of sin on my part. I have my own heart in view. It's hard. So this is not a statement about spirited competition. It's a statement against competition that has the spirit of the world. It's a very different thing. There's never a time, you see, in which God does not claim this world for himself, just like there is never a time in which he does not claim us for himself. There's never a time in which Jesus' kingdom is not on the move, and there is never a time we are not living in it. We are called by our God who has set us apart. He has set us apart from the world by his love to live in light of what Christ has already done and what he is doing right now and what it is to come. So brothers and sisters, may we we be the kind of people, whether it's a ball game or whether it's in church and all the steps that come in between that, like our Lord and King has demonstrated to us and for us that we will glorify our God in all places. 
May we seek his kingdom first. May it be his will, not our will, that is done on the earth as it is in heaven. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, you are good, you are patient, you are kind. There's no God like you. Lord, I pray that we would be captivated by how much you love us and that the knowledge of that love that you have for us and how much you delight in us would spill over to every aspect of our lives, that we would wind up pursuing you as the highest good, that you might be our trophy, as opposed to tracing after all these idols, all these other things that we think love us but do not. Lord, you are patient. You're so good. I thank you for the grace you've shown to us in Jesus Christ. I thank you for your people. And I pray for us that we would walk in your ways. I pray all of this in Jesus' name.